My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life, in your own context, to refocus on the story of Jesus. Our first scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 5. We're reading verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many many trespasses brought justification. If, because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." But law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have two scripture readings from the book of James. The first is from James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and then on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think that they are religious but do not bridle their tongues, they deceive their hearts and their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to care for the orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Our second reading from the book of James comes from chapter 2, and we're reading uh, verses 14 through 24. 14 through 24. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus, the scripture was filled that says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
All right, so this is our fifth and final week in the book of James, and I hope that y'all have been as challenged and as enriched as I have been by this book. In the time that we have together this morning, we are finally going to address what tends to be the most common topic or set of questions that comes to people's minds when they read through or consider James, and that is the relationship between works or good deeds and faith. James, as we have seen, puts a lot of emphasis on what we do. He tells us to pray in all seasons. He tells us to care for and to come alongside the poor and the needy. He tells us to exercise control over our tongues and to live a holy life. That's James' calling card, right? Oh, you claim to follow Jesus and confess him as Lord. Well, that better be reflected in your actions, in your deeds. Sometimes James' insistence on the importance of good works and holy living can be so passionate, so explicit, that he seems to bump up against or grate against other portions of the New Testament. We find ourselves thinking, Wait, I I thought the whole point of the gospel was that none of us were good enough, that we are incapable of being good. And that's what we need Jesus for. He did what we couldn't so that we can just place our faith in him and be justified. Is James on on board with that? Because I've spent the last month hearing James tell me that a true disciple of Christ will do this or will live like this. And never once did he let me off the hook by saying something like, well, I mean, try your best, but of course Jesus has you covered. So you're ultimately good to go. Does James understand the gospel? Reading through James, it's not hard to see why these questions and concerns pop up. James' letter is often compared and contrasted with the writings of Paul, the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, the big hitters, like the letter to the church in Rome and to the church and to the Ephesians. And comparing certain verses side by side, it definitely seems like they're coming from different places. Paul writes, for instance, in Romans 3, verse 28, we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In Ephesians, he elaborates a little bit, right, and writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So what are we supposed to do with James when he says, for instance, that true religion, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, is this, to care for the orphans and the widows, and to remain unstained by the world? What about in chapter 2, when he says faith without works is dead, and then even more strongly, and so you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So you can see why people read Paul, and then they read James, and they conclude, these guys are not on the same page. And this can sometimes become a very charged, even emotional or anxiety-ridden discussion, because I think it feels like we are hitting at something of ultimate importance. The thing that, if we're being totally honest, is sometimes all that we really want to know. How are we saved? And even more concretely, how do I get into heaven when I die? That's a perfectly natural thing, to want to end up in the good place, quote-unquote, so to speak. Who wouldn't be concerned about that? And when the stakes are this high, what we really want is we just just want someone to give it to us straight. Would someone just tell me what I got to do, how I get in? In the context of the James versus Paul debate, this question is often boiled down to two options. Okay, do I need to believe something, or do I have to do something? If I go with Paul, all I need is faith. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like all I have to do is believe a certain thing probably that Jesus died and rose again for my sin. If I believe that and say the sinner's prayer or something, then I'm good to go. And it's more extreme forms. This option becomes a kind of password to heaven model. Just mutter a particular short prayer about confessing your sins and asking Jesus into your heart. And then the door to heaven unlocks and my eternal destiny is sealed forever. Sounds kind of nice in some ways. On the other side of things, if we go with James, well, it definitely sounds more difficult, uh, but maybe a bit more like fair or something like Can you really get into heaven on the back of Jesus' sacrifice if you just call on his name once at summer camp as a sixth grader, even if you were genuine in that moment, but then from that point on, completely ignore God and live a life of indulgence and chaos that looks nothing like the life of Christ himself? 
It makes sense that, if you, that your life should reflect that of your saviors, right? And that it would exhibit an attempt to live by his teachings. But then, you know, we look back at our own actions and our own lives at the times that we have failed to do what we were supposed to do when we've ignored the needy or we've set something ablaze with our tongues and we, we might get a little nervous. Maybe we even fall into that anxiety-ridden trap of trying to earn our way of counting up our good deeds and weighing them against our bad ones. Or maybe we just decide to run back to Romans chapter 3, verse 28, and we leave James just safely shut indefinitely. Well, I'm hoping that by the end of this sermon, we will see that both of these options are caricatures of Paul and James. They are simplifications built off of misunderstandings, half-truths, and presuppositions that we take in the Bible without even knowing it. I'm hoping that we might see how Paul and James are addressing different aspects of the same foundation, the same core. And they actually fit together quite nicely. They complement each other. They fill one another out a bit. And I think that we can get there if we are willing to be careful and open-minded readers of the Bible, and we are willing to reconsider some of our own categories and basic assumptions. Quick little aside before we jump into the meat of things. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that he has decided to feed the Corinthian church spiritual milk as opposed to solid food, meaning that he is just going to give them the basics that they need to know, the stuff that is easy to understand, easy to digest, metaphorically speaking, because they're young in their faith, and that's all that they could handle at this point. Well, halfway through writing this sermon, I decided to look up on the internet what food is the most difficult to digest. The answer, by the way, is pork as far as major food groups go. Pork takes the longest time and the most energy from your body to digest of any commonly eaten food. So y'all, this sermon is like a giant pork chop dinner. There is some intricate stuff going on here. This is not going to be real easy. It's not going to be real short. So buckle in, get ready to really chew on some stuff for a while. I know that you can handle it. We're going to start with Paul. And to get a sense of what Paul is actually bringing to this discussion, we sort of have to understand the entire book of Romans. It, not quite the whole book, but the first five chapters at least. I warn you, this one might be a doozy. So Paul is writing this letter to a Roman church that's having a very specific problem. They are divided straight down the middle into a Jewish Christian camp and a Gentile Christian camp. And remember, Gentile is just the word for anyone that's not ethnically Jewish, not a descendant of Abraham. And even though both of these groups in the church believe that Jesus was God and that he died and rose again from the dead, they are at each other's throats. The Jewish Christians are insisting that the Gentile converts observe the Torah, meaning all of the laws outlined in the Old Testament in books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This included things like never eating pork, keeping a very strict Sabbath, being circumcised. And it's understandable that they would insist on this because Jesus, after all, was a Jew. He did all of these things because that had been, up to this point, how God's people honored him and served him and remained in right relationship with him. The Torah, the Hebrew word for the Old Testament law codes, that was the instrument through which one obeyed God and was reconciled to him. So yeah, followers of Jesus should keep the Torah, they thought. But the Gentile Christians, you know, they loved their slow-roasted barbecue. They wanted to be able to clean their living rooms on a Saturday afternoon. And the men were really not excited about the idea of a seemingly unnecessary surgery. So they insisted that Jesus had made the Old Testament law codes totally obsolete. And many of them would actually go further to say that the Jewish tradition had always been kind of silly, a bit stupid, and that the good news of Jesus, that was a totally new religion. Jesus being born a Jew, that was just a coincidence. The Christian way was totally disconnected from the backwards Old Testament law. And so Paul writes his longest, his most complicated, and his most theologically brilliant letter in order to heal this divide in the Roman church by explaining to them how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus relates to the works of the law, the practices that the Jews had been observing for generations. To put it succinctly, the empty tomb and circumcision, how do those things fit together? 
Paul's first move in Romans 1 is to establish the terrible reality of human sin and brokenness. He spends the first chapter showing how the nations of the world are trapped in a cycle of violence, debauchery, and wickedness. Their, their hearts are corrupt to the core, and it's wreaking havoc on the rest of God's good creation. At this point, the Jewish Christians who are gathered around hearing the letter being read for the first time, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. They're nodding along. You know how you do when the pastor is saying something that you already agree with, because they're thinking to themselves, exactly. The nations and the people of the world are terrible and sinful. That's why Moses gave us the law, the Torah, to guide us and to keep us in line, to set us apart from all those terrible people. But in chapter two, Paul turns it on them. He says, well, yeah, that would be great if you actually kept the law, which you did not. Those 613 laws that Moses gave you on Mount Sinai, you have been breaking them over and over and over again for generations at this point. Y'all like to think of yourself as a guide for the blind and as a light for those who are in the dark, he says in chapter 2, verse 20. But if we were to look at your history, y'all are just as guilty as anyone else. So yeah, God gave you the Torah to help you stay in right relationship with him, but you ignored it. And so it didn't work. In fact, Paul concludes, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And now it's the Gentile Christians' turn to be nodding their heads. Aha, I knew the Torah was worthless and stupid. Now we can finally stop reading Leviticus. Not so fast, Paul says. The Torah was good and right and true, and it gives good instructions to those who follow it. It's not the Torah's fault that nobody actually keeps it. Furthermore, the Torah has played the essential role of exposing just how big and deep the problem really was, just how deeply sin had penetrated into the human condition, just how dire of a state we are all in. The Torah, the law, brings into sharp relief the need for a savior. And to clear things up, in the end of chapter 3 and in chapter 4, Paul shares the good news of Jesus Christ. Instead of holding all of humanity responsible, God himself came as a human being, and he did what no one else had been able to do. He lived a sinless life. He died as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. On the cross, Jesus bore all of the sin and brokenness and suffering that has plagued all of humanity throughout its history, and he died with all of it resting upon his shoulders. And then he overcame it by rising from the dead three days later. And it's this new resurrection life that he makes available to others. Jesus became what we are, sinful and broken, so that we could become what he is, resurrected and in right relationship with God. And so it's in the context of this broader conflict and discussion that Paul writes Romans chapter 3, verse 28. We hold that a person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. In this verse, Paul is clarifying to the church in Rome that the way that humanity is reconciled to God is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not through Torah observance, not through maintaining a kosher diet and being circumcised and keeping the other 613 laws in Leviticus. He's trying to put that conflict to bed. Paul is not, however, directly addressing what we think of as good works, things like being kind to our coworkers and serving meals at a soup kitchen. Paul is not really commenting, at least not directly, on the role that good deeds play within a life of faith at all. He's trying to explain how the Jewish law code, the Torah, relates to the acts of Jesus Christ. By chapter 5, maybe Paul is frustrated with both groups, how they keep trying to be right and to gloat over one another, because he slows things down a bit, he reframes, and he tries to give them a different way of thinking about things. In chapter 5, Paul describes two different kinds of humanity. The first is the humanity of Adam. Everybody descended from Adam, who is the first human. In other words, shorthand for talking about everyone. Everybody descended from Adam fell into the clutches of sin. The story of Genesis makes that obvious. Adam's sons are Cain and Abel, and they show how sin and violence are already running rampant in Genesis chapter 4. Jacob, David, Samson, all the Old Testament heroes, they're all deeply flawed people who tend to leave a trail of pain and suffering in their wake. 
through Adam, sin entered in and gave birth to a humanity that's been plagued by evil, pain, and death since the garden. Jesus, however, through his life, death, and resurrection, has given birth to a new kind of humanity. Paul calls Jesus the new Adam. Jesus has made possible a new way of being human. By taking our sins upon himself and triumphing over them in the resurrection, Jesus has made it possible for us to be in right relationship to God and to begin living as those who have been justified. This is Paul's ultimate point in the first five chapters of Romans. It is his invitation to the warring factions within the church, and it's his, it is his invitation to you and to me. Jesus has made possible a new humanity, a new kind of being human. We are invited to join in, to die to our old selves, die to the sin of Adam, and rise in the newness of life with our Savior Jesus. And this is how we get to the book of James. This is where we can start to see that James is not contradicting Paul. He is filling out the teachings of Paul. He is drawing the natural conclusions to which Paul's teachings ought to lead us. What does it mean to join this new humanity, the one made possible through Jesus, the new Adam? Well, on the one hand, it means trusting that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was sufficient to redeem the world, that the Torah, though right and true, had already fulfilled its purpose of highlighting our need for a Savior. That's part of what it means. But joining this new humanity also means a huge transformation in the way that we live. It means that we should act differently. We should do different things. And this makes sense, right? This makes intuitive sense. Whenever you join any kind of group, you naturally understand that joining that group will entail certain actions, right? Let's just have a silly example here. Say I was going to invite you to my bird watching club. Let's call it the Bird Watchers of Grifton, B-O-G, it's Bog. What would it mean to accept my invitation to Bog? Well, first, you'd have to give an affirmative, an affirmative response, right? Yes, I would like to join. But it would also include other things, right? Like purchasing a pair of binoculars and a decent camera and coming to our meetings. If you said, yes, I want to join, I believe in the values of Bog. But then you never came to a meeting. You didn't get any binoculars. And in fact, you started taking pot shots at local birds with your BB gun. In what sense have you become a bird watcher of Grifton? In no sense, right? Accepting such an invitation requires a certain set of actions and attitudes. That's the point that James is making in chapter 1, verses 22 through 27, and in some ways throughout his entire book. In verse 22, he writes, Be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. You can't just accept the invitation to join this new humanity and then not do any of the things that that invitation entails. People who do that, James continues in verse 23, they're like someone who stares at themselves in a mirror and then goes off and immediately forgets what they look like. It's a great little one-liner from James there. That's exactly what it's like. To say that you want to join Jesus' new humanity, you claim that identity, but then as soon as you walk down the street, you forget who you are and to whom you belong. In our readings from chapter 2, James fleshes out this concept further and shows that you can't parse out faith and works from one another and put faith in this box and works in this other box. They require each other. They don't make sense apart from one another because they are both parts of the same new identity of somebody that is reborn in Jesus. Trying to stake a flag in faith Totally divorced from works, James says, that's like telling a starving person piously and solemnly to go and to be fed while you chomp down on a double cheeseburger and don't offer them anything. It's misunderstanding the entire point of it all. Take a look at James chapter 2 verse 18 with me. Here James quotes some hypothetical objector, and I think that we should say it in the sort of mocking voice that people use when they do this, right? Like, oh, and then she said, rah, rah, rah. So we should say, someone might say, well, you have faith and I have works. 
James says, you show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. Here, James is denying the idea that faith and good deeds are like spiritual gifts or something, that some people might have one and some the other, and they balance out between everybody, right? Like we might say, some people are gifted in speaking, while some people are gifted with powerful prayer. That's not how faith and work and good deeds work. You can't have one without the other, because they are both irreducible parts of the same identity. If someone who was reborn into the new humanity made possible by Jesus and then happily continues to live and act according to the humanity of Adam, then what sense have they really accepted the invitation? In no sense, according to James. And this is James' great contribution to the New Testament. It's how James fills out and complements the teachings of Paul. In James' letter, he has described to us what it looks like to join the reborn humanity of Jesus. Joining Jesus entails certain things, a certain transformation, a certain way of living in the world. And that's what this entire sermon series has been about. The new humanity made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they side with the poor and with the needy, just like Jesus did. They pray to God in all seasons, asking the Father of good lights for good things. They recognize the image of the Creator God in all people and are not willing to use their tongue to dehumanize those who've been made in His likeness. That's what it means to adopt the identity given to us in Jesus in the same way that a new member of Bird Watchers of Grifton uh, needs to start watching birds. Now, so no one, nobody is going to be perfect in this effort. James says so himself in chapter three, verse two. He says we all stumble in many ways, but James, he offers us the hard word. He gives us the intense pep talk. He's the drill sergeant telling us to get our stuff together. And Lord knows that we need someone in the Bible to do that. I know that I do. Do you really believe, James asks, that Jesus died and rose again from your sins and has invited you into a new way of life? He's offered you a new identity as someone reborn in him. Well, here is what that identity looks like in practice. Now, maybe, hopefully, actually, you've noticed that over the past 15, 20 minutes or so, the question that we started out with this morning, how do we get into heaven when we die? It's sort of faded into the background. We don't seem to be addressing it explicitly or directly at this point. And that's that's kind of on purpose. That actually sort of makes sense because that's not the question that either Paul or James is addressing, at least not in that form, not in that kind of wording. The main purpose of the Bible even, I would argue, is not to tell us how to get into heaven when we die. If that were the case, it could have been a lot shorter, don't you think? Maybe just one book entitled The Ten Steps to Unlocking the Pearly Gates. That's not what we have. What the Bible is doing and what all the New Testament writers are doing, Paul, James, and the rest of them, they're inviting you to join in with a new kind of humanity. They're inviting you into a new form of being human, one that does not descend from Adam. That humanity looked like Cain killing Abel, David's horrible sin against Bathsheba, the execution of the only perfect human to ever live, but rather the one that descends from the risen Christ, who died and was raised for the sins of the world. That humanity, made possible not through the works of the law, the works of the Torah, or through the efforts of individual people, but through the work of God working through Jesus Christ, that humanity looks like rebirth, renewal, and transformation. Now, a part, a piece of that invitation includes the promise of resurrection, final restoration, and redemption. It includes the promise that this new humanity is the one spoken about in Revelation that has every tear wiped from their eyes, whose mourning and crying and pain is abolished forever. So this invitation does address our eternity. It does address the question, of what happens to us when we die. But that's not all that this invitation is about. That might not even be the main point. It's more like an obvious and happy result. So to conclude this morning, let's ask a different question, a better question. Not how do we get into heaven, but rather what does it mean to join this new humanity? 
Well, joining this new humanity means resting in the work of Christ to redeem the world. It means trusting that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was sufficient to cover your sins and the sins of the whole world in a manner that the law, the Torah, never could. But as James so passionately has reminded us over the past several weeks, joining this new humanity also means living differently, living in such a way that rejects the logic and the ways of the world, allowing God to mold us through suffering, siding with the poor and the needy. It means controlling our tongues and constantly remembering that all people are made in the image of God. These things are not separable. We cannot parse them out into faith over here and good deeds over here. Both of these things are part of our new identity, our identity in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.